Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. I'm your host, Mike Gelb. And if you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to my newsletter where you will receive every new episode a week early. Head to theconsumervc.com and click subscribe. All content and episodes are intended for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. Our guest today is Matt Gibson, co-founder and CEO of New Culture. New Culture makes animal-free dairy products that stretch, melt, and taste like the real deal through fermentation. We're going to discuss why he made animal-free cheese, what makes cheese cheese, how it's different to cheese alternatives that are currently in market, and as well as his go-to market strategy, which I thought was pretty unique. So I'm really excited to have him share the story. Without further ado, here's Matt. Matt, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? I'm great, Mike. How about yourself? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So let's start from the very beginning. What was your inspiration to make animal-free cheese? Yeah, when I look back at it, I kind of see animal-free cheese as this culmination of of all these passions I had growing up in New Zealand. So I've been a vegan for um, a very long time. So animal rights, sustainability, you know, it's been something I've always cared deeply about. And at the same time, I've had this love of science and, and entrepreneurship. I got my Bachelor of Science from Auckland University. And when I graduated, I was able to work full-time on this website I'd founded during my studies that had grown popular in, in New Zealand and Australia. And so I, I had exposure to all these elements. And I think what brought all these worlds crashing together was hearing about this famous $300,000 lab-grown beef patty in 2013. I don't know if you remember that, but that was quite a quite a big event back then. It was, it was a, a cultivated meat patty that was grown by a, um, a lab under Mark Post and sponsored by Sergey Brin. And it, and it sort of brought the mainstream world to this idea that, you know, we can recreate animal products without the animal. And to me, that was just mind-blowing and something I just instantly wanted to be a part of. And, you know, New Zealand's a very isolated country. <laughs> so for a long time, I resigned myself to the fact that, look, I'll be an ardent supporter. Not much has happened in New Zealand. So I'll just be on the sidelines, you know, liking posts and, and trying to support where possible. And I was just watching the space mature and develop really closely. And what was interesting was that I started to notice that for the next three or four years after that, after that event, all these companies were coming out and being backed um, by venture capitalists and, you know, growing teams and, and this, that, and the other. And they were all focused on meat. So they were making cultivated pork, cultivated chicken, beef, fish, you name it. And there was not as much of a focus on dairy and, and actually making like real dairy products without the animal. Now, New Zealand makes a lot of dairy. So it's something I've been exposed to all my life. And, you know, I was very much aware of just how big the dairy market is just how unsustainable it is and how much of a need we need to transition people over to not just animal-free meat options, but also animal-free dairy options. And so that's what really, really kind of motivated me to actually do something and to actually try and start a company that would help uh, the world transition to animal-free dairy. And then 
when we think about cheese, you know, obviously dairy encompasses a suite of products and cheese is by far and away the most unsustainable dairy product, which, which you know, takes quite a few people by surprise. We think of cheese as this indulgent, delicious food, which it is, but it's also extremely resource intensive. So cheese is generally considered the third worst food product after beef and lamb for things such as greenhouse gas emissions, land usage, water usage, it can be considered the most resource intensive animal product. And what makes it even worse, in my opinion, is the fact that the current plant-based cheese options don't recreate the dairy cheese experience. I'm not sure if you've tried your fair share of plant-based cheeses, but at least I've spoken to a number of people since starting New Culture, and I hear the same thing about plant-based cheese, right? It's, it's really difficult if you're a cheese lover, if you're a mainstream dairy cheese consumer, to switch over to plant-based cheese. And that's a problem because dairy cheese is so unsustainable. Yeah, I've had a few vegan cheeses. One in particular, I remember when I was in Philadelphia, I went to a vegan cheesesteak shop and it was a very great, you know, it was a great effort to mimic a cheesesteak, but it wasn't quite there in terms of that kind of experience that you kind of um, experience. So totally understand it from that standpoint. Before starting new culture or even thinking about starting a food company, did you have a background in the food industry? No, no. My background was pretty diverse in the sense that, you know, I studied science at university, quickly realized, even though I love science, I wasn't quite cut out to be a scientist. I didn't have the disposition to do that work. And I started, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I founded a website and an education tech that was eventually sold. And then I actually moved into blockchain for a while. I was the underlying technology behind Bitcoin. Blockchain is, is a, a, a breakthrough in, in, um, cryptology and the finance markets. And so I really wanted to to be a part of that. But as I mentioned, as soon as I heard about this idea of um, of cultivated uh, animal products, and I, I instantly switched to new culture. Talk me a little bit of the process. What was kind of like the stage one after deciding, okay, this is the type of company I want to do? How did you start experimenting? And how did you land on micro-fermentation? Yeah, the first question I asked myself is, you know, why don't plant-based cheeses work? Or why aren't they good enough, maybe is a better is a better question, to really mimic dairy cheese attributes? And, you know, it doesn't take long to, to find the answer to that question. And the answer is the fact that, you know, there's one crucial ingredient in dairy cheese that provides all the properties we love about cheese, whether it's the stretch and the melt of mozzarella, the uh, sharpness of, of some sharp cheddar or the, or the crumbliness of parmesan. And that's all thanks to a class of proteins called casein proteins. So casein proteins are the, um, are the major dairy protein found in mammalian milk. And they allow milk to not only turn into cheese. When you take milk through the cheese baking process, that curd that's formed is essentially you destabilizing casein proteins and those proteins and trapping fat. But also when you treat that curd, if you dip it in some hot water and you stretch it or you age it with certain you know, starter cultures, what you're really doing is you're just really affecting the casein, and the casein is then providing those those attributes. So it's such an important and intrinsic part to the cheese experience. And so then the question is, you know, what are the methods we can utilize to make casein um, other than sourcing it from animals? Because, you know, the whole point of doing what we're doing in this animal-free movement is to try and create something more sustainable and more ethical. And there's a few technologies that, that you could consider, you know, there's what we're doing, which is microbial fermentation, which I can explain what that means in a sec. There's other technologies such as molecular farming, which is essentially growing an animal protein in plants. 
there's cell culturing, which is essentially growing epithelial cells that will lactate milk out of the animal. And we really landed on microbial fermentation because it's the most scalable and the most routinely used actually in the food industry. How really I did those early experiments was I first wanted to know, can you actually make a cheese product um, if you start with just isolated casein protein? So let's, let's pretend that I've already produced my animal-free casein. Can I actually make cheese from that? Can I combine it with some fats and, and sort of make a liquid that can go through the cheese-making process? And I did this in my kitchen, and I just took casein derived from animals. You know, you can buy casein powder, like you can buy whey, whey protein powder. And it worked. You know, I could make mozzarella with it. And it was a very simple experiment, but, but you know, at least to me, a moment that, that gave me a lot of confidence that this is working. And then the second or the experiment was, can we get microbes to produce casein protein. You know, this idea of microbial fermentation is essentially training microbes like bacteria, yeast, fungi to produce a desired molecule, right? A target protein. And for us, that is casein protein. Um, it's a technology that has been used um, in food for a very long time. And what's interesting is that, you know, the dairy industry has been using this technology for decades. Uh, when you turn milk into cheese, the enzyme that you add to milk for it to curdle um, is made using this exact same method. Um, this method of engineering a microbe to produce a compound that it doesn't normally produce. And so I wanted to know, well, could I train this microbe to produce casein protein, which is, as I mentioned, this intrinsic ingredient in cheese making. And those early experiments were also promising. You know, it was very, very tiny amounts, but we could see that we were producing um, casein protein use these microbes. And it was those two, those two simple experiments that really sort of set us on the path to where we are today. I really appreciate you uh, walking us through it. There are other options to create this casein protein, but why you landed on microbial fermentation was because it's the most scalable. Talk to me a little bit about that. Why is it the most scalable and, and what is like overall the actual process to actually produce the casein? So it's the most scalable for a number of reasons. By sheer fact that it is the most frequently used to produce chemicals and, and proteins, and therefore has the most infrastructure available is, is one key reason. You know, microbes are very sturdy, very pliable little creatures. And so, you know, the ability to engineer them, the ability to grow them in very dense amounts is already inherent within them. So it's a very straightforward way compared to trying to engineer something like plants or engineer something like um, like mammalian cells, which are, which are a lot more sensitive. Furthermore, microbes are incredibly efficient at producing proteins. And so there's all these traits and all these advantages and all this historical reason why microbial fermentation is very scalable. And, and long story short, there's just a blueprint to scaling up this technology, right? It's been done for the last 30 years, been done for multiple products. And so we can look at a path well-trodden and follow those best practices for us to scale up quickly and efficiently. And generally what's, what this process looks like is you're essentially taking this microbe that you have uh, engineered to produce your target molecule for us as casein protein, and you grow that in a fermentation tank. And what you're really looking to do is provide the best conditions possible for this microbe 
to grow in very large and dense amounts. So you want to pack as many of these microbes in this fermentation tank as possible. The more microbes you have, the more of these little factories that are producing your casein protein. And then you also want to provide the environment, the nutrition for the microbe to produce a lot um, of your desired compound. So to produce it very efficiently. And the bigger the fermentation tank, the more protein you're going to produce at cheaper costs. So this idea of economies of scale really holds true in fermentation in this very capex-heavy industry. And so that's why you'll hear a lot this idea of scale-up. Because when you scale up your process, when you go from two-liter fermentation tanks to 200,000-liter fermentation tanks, you're really achieving an economies of scale that allows you to actually produce protein at prices that are more or less at parity with conventional dairy protein prices. After you grow your microbes in a large fermentation tank, you then have to recover only your protein. So, you know, you've got a lot of things in that fermentation tank. You've got your microbe, you've got your feedstock that the microbe is growing on. You've got your protein that's being produced. And the idea is that you want to efficiently and relatively simply isolate only your target protein. So for us, only that casein protein away from everything else in that fermentation tank. So you come out the other end essentially with a protein powder. And then once you have that protein powder, for us, we just combine it with plant-based fats, some salts, and some other very basic ingredients to really recreate milk that we can take through the standard cheesemaking process. So the, the beauty of what we're doing is that you know we're making a casein that is bioidentical to animal-derived casein, which means that it's going to function and behave in the exact same way. So once we produce this casein protein powder that comes out of our fermentation, we can then just go to any cheese manufacturer and use those same production lines to make cheeses. Interesting. So once you're able to produce your own casein using that fermentation process, then you're actually able to go into a normal, per se, cheese factory to actually create um, animal-free cheese. Yes. How long is that process of growing the microbes and how long does it usually take? I mean, and, and overall too, after then you have to add plant-based fats and what have you. Talk to me a little bit about like the actual like overall uh, timeline. Yeah. So it really depends on a number of factors. The microbe that you use, you know, some microbes take two days to go through a fermentation cycle. Some take seven days. And you're really using that intrinsic property of the microbe with also what does it mean from a OPEX point of view? You know, to run a large fermentation tank over seven days is going to cost a lot more in operational expenditure than to run it over two days. And so you're really playing around with the OPEX as well as the microbes inherent growth cycle. It's going to take you between two to seven days. The recovery time, so after you've grown your microbe and you've produced a lot of your target protein, to recover that protein, again, is very intrinsic to the process, the number of um, unit operational steps in that process. It's going to be dependent on the target, on the protein, but that can also take between one to three days. You know, at 200,000 litre scale, if you think about it, you're dealing with 200,000 litres of broth, of, of feedstock that, you, that you're cycling through. So that's a lot of, that's a lot of liquid to um, purify your, your protein from. And then once you come out the other end of your, with your protein powder, again, it's, I'm not giving you a straightforward answer because it's very dependent on, on what you're doing. Again, the type of cheese that you make, right, is going to have an associated time. So if we're making a, an aged Parmesan, we're talking about 12 months. If we're making a fresh cheese, right, like a, like a fresh mozzarella, that's going to take you a few hours. 
So, you know, it's all dependent on a lot of the different factors. But when it at least comes to the comes to the cheese making process, the timelines there are identical to the timelines in making, you know, conventional cheese from conventional cow's milk. That's helpful. I mean, and it also makes a lot of sense how it also is dependent on what you're actually trying to do in terms of what type of cheese you want to create. I know you're not going to launch until 2024, but when you think about, obviously there's so many different types of cheeses out there. When you think about what cheeses you actually want to start with and skews, what are you going to start with? <laughs> the highest consumed cheese in the United States is mozzarella. And we see that as the biggest opportunity. And so that's our first cheese. We also see mozzarella having the biggest difference between the conventional animal-derived mozzarella and the plant-based mozzarella in terms of the gap in quality, the gap in those cheese attributes. And, you know, from what we were just talking about, mozzarella is a pretty quick cheese to make. So that is just a, um, another advantage that we have. We can quickly turn that protein into cheese rather than waiting for 12 months for it to age and, you know, to make a more mature cheese. So we're, we're starting with mozzarella and we're going to launch into the food service market. You know, most mozzarella is consumed in the food service market and that is very much thanks to pizza. I didn't appreciate how much people love pizza over here until I actually moved here. So, and then, you know, I've, I've, I've grown to appreciate it as much as possible with, um, with obviously um, vegan pizza. But, you know, the way we think about entering the food service market is that we first want to we first want to collaborate with essentially the best chefs in the United States, working with chefs that, that people know and respect, that can be evangelists of our products. We feel that when we do commercialize this way, with you know modest amounts of product, because of the scale up and, and, the, and the timelines we're dealing with, when we first commercialize, it's going to be relatively small amounts of cheese. And the question is, how do we get the most impact out of those small amounts of cheese as we continue to expand and scale in the background? And we think it's very much to align ourselves and to partner and to collaborate with these amazing chefs. And, you know, we've already been collaborating with a number of them and pretty blown away by just how excited they are, how much they're excited about the product, about the innovation that's happening in this industry. And so, you know, there may be some exciting announcements um, coming up to do with that. Now, as we think a bit longer term, where we really want to end up with, with our animal-free dairy mozzarella is in those national chains, right? Those national pizza chains are where eye-wateringly high amounts of cheese is brought and consumed. It's, it will blow your mind just how much cheese cheese is used there. And so, you know, from a mission perspective, you know, we're a mission-driven company. Our vision is to lead the transition of the world to an animal-free dairy diet. And so from a mission point of view, where we're really going to have a material impact on the sustainability of the cheese industry, at least the first step in that direction, is going to be transitioning those national chains over to a much more sustainable product, which is going to be our new culture and all free cheese. Because, you know, the beauty, and, and I, something I probably haven't got around to explaining quite yet, of, of what we're doing is that we're making a cheese that is indistinguishable from animal-derived mozzarella. You know, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And we've had plenty of tasting so far where people can't tell the difference. And on top of that, it is much more sustainable, orders of magnitude more sustainable than conventional dairy mozzarella, whilst being lactose-free, being cholesterol-free, um, being free of any trace hormones or antibiotics. So overall, just being a better option. And so that's the current plan for mozzarella. The beauty of casein is that it's a very versatile protein and you can make any cheese you want as long as you have casein protein. So we're obviously not going to stop at mozzarella. We're going to look to make a whole suite of cheeses and we'll see what that second and third cheese is. We haven't quite decided exactly what those cheeses are, but you know, it's going to be coming up pretty soon. 
on the consumer education front, how do you make sure not to lump plant-based cheeses with plant-based meats, but I think that there is a concern about how, and this idea, maybe a bifurcation of, is a product better for you or is it better for the planet? And there's certainly, at least in plant-based meat alternatives, that there is some skepticism that if it is actually better for you, obviously better for the planet, right? It's you know using uh, plants, not killing cows or, or chickens or what have you. But how do you make sure that you can position yourself and what are you doing this from a brand perspective of, hey, like this is actually better for both. This is actually better for you and also better for the planet. Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, the beauty of this technology is that consumers don't have to make that choice. And you know, to us it's all about transparency. Transparency is one of our, our core values at New Culture. And so really being transparent about this is what is exactly in our products and this is how we make it. And that's part of the reason why we want to first launch as a consumer-facing company. So to us, really controlling the messaging, the education, really trying to control as much of the product experience and the brand experience as possible. You know, we don't want people to think some some company far away that they've never heard of is making an animal-free animal product and just selling it to um, a cheese company and and a cheese company selling it to the consumer. We want to be as close to the consumer as possible. And so, you know, at the end of the day, our cheese is made using very simple ingredients and very simple processes, the exact same processes that uh, conventional cheese made from Malia Milk is made. And we'll be transparent about that. We'll show that. We don't have to engineer and go through very, very processing applications to turn something like a plant into a meat mimic or into a cheese mimic. We're, we're literally taking a dairy protein and turning it into a dairy cheese, and you can do that incredibly simply. So to us, it's all about presenting that, being transparent about that, and earning that trust from the consumer. And, and to your previous points, chefs will be a big help with that putting out a lot of uh, content around what we're doing and why we're doing it and how we're doing it. It's going to be a big help with that. And ultimately, the, the product itself, you know, um, the product experience goes a long way. What does it feel like to, to consume the product um, will, will be a big factor as well. When do you think about distribution? I know you mentioned that the entry point that you're first doing is within food service and then the eventual goal after you know partnerships with chefs um, getting into uh, pizza chains and and what have you when does the conversion to grocery happen or the introduction to to grocery rather and I think it's something that it's a market we will be entering again the question is when you know food service market for mozzarella for example is a five billion dollar market just for pizza cheese and how much of that market do we want to take? How much of a leadership position do we do we want to be in before we move into retail? So it's a question we're thinking about um, still, you know, really what makes sense for new culture. Retail also brings a few other unique things, such as individual packaging for cheeses, shelving fees, and, and other such things. So we don't have a firm time on that yet. It's going to happen, and it's really going to be dictated by our food service expansion and us first winning in that in that market first. So you haven't launched yet and you've raised now, I think, 28.5 million. Is that right? Around that, yeah. Around that, okay. And it was in two, over two rounds, I believe. Yes. What was your approach to fundraising from the beginning? Why did you fundraise in the way that you did as well? At the end of the day, we're a, we're a startup. And, and, and if you talk about some broad brushstrokes, 
we don't do anything different to any other startup in, in raising for a SaaS company or, or some other digital company. It's it's we pitch to investors, you know, we we showcase our vision, our team, our progress up until that point. You know, we we try and find the right investor that um, is aligned with us and, and will back us and, and believes that we're the company to win. I think when it comes to an industry like this or any more, you know, capex heavy industry such as such as biotech, it becomes a bit more difficult because you know it's really expensive to do the stuff we're doing, even at bench scale, right? It takes a lot of equipment. I mean, you have to essentially build out a pretty hefty R and D lab. Yes, unless you are lucky, like we were, to go through a incubator like IndieBio, which is a essentially like the Y combinator for biotech startups, and it's the same incubator that you know fantastic companies in the space went through. You are going to have to prove that you're the company to win with very limited amounts of data behind you. And that's that's really tough, frankly, because you know to generate the data, you need to have a lot of money to spend on the R&D part of the company. And so we were lucky that we got into IndieBio and therefore we had access to lab space, to equipment that enabled us to do those early proof of concept experiments to show that we can engineer a microbe to produce casein protein, to show that we can take casein protein and turn it into a delicious cheese. And therefore, we could have we raised our, our seed funding. Frankly, I couldn't imagine trying to do that without having that um, having that opportunity of IndieBio. It would be, be a really tough ask. That's really helpful. Um, just knowing as well where those dollars are going to on the R&D side. Talk to me a little bit about, I mean, I know you're launching next year. I know you can't give away any secrets about your your launch, but what are some of like the challenges that you've experienced and just in company building from the get-go that, that you've experienced since uh, starting new culture that you had to learn from? Sure. I think there's, there's two ways to think about this. One is, what are the challenges that anyone starting a company experiences and and you know those those are agnostic to industry you know building an amazing team raising the capital that's needed you know these are all challenges that everyone faces and continues to face but as it relates specifically to um to the industry that we're in i think a, a common thing you'll hear in the space is scale up right capacity as i mentioned this is this is an industry that's been around for 40 years but it's been around to produce enzymes and other molecules that are used in very tiny amounts for food. You know, the rennet that goes into milk to, to turn that milk into cheese is very, very, very small amounts. And therefore, the infrastructure that is needed or that exists today for those enzymes and other small molecules cannot sustain the demands that companies such as ourselves and others that are looking to make animal-free options are needing right now. So people are moving very quickly in the space to make animal-free cheeses, animal-free milks, animal-free, you know, eggs, you name it. And a lot of the proteins that they're making uh, make up a large portion of the products that they're intending to make. So for example, cheese contains anywhere between 15 to 25% protein and there are billions and billions and billions of kilograms of cheese just consumed in the United States. And what that means is that we have to, as an industry, scale our technology to produce those amounts of protein animal-free. And the infrastructure is just not there yet to sustain that. And so the challenge um, for, for companies in this space is how do you secure capacity um, at commercial scale? And how do you build upon that capacity? How do you um, not only find one 100,000 liter tank 
that you can grow your microbin and produce your protein in at a affordable cost? How do you find 10 of those? How do you build 10 of those? And so we were very lucky that, you know, we were one of the first companies to come out and focus on animal-free cheese. We have a number of exciting um, options on the CMO front. Um, CMO is contract manufacturing. And we also have a number of exciting investors that can work with us on the scale-up as well. So we have investors on our cap tables such as ADM, such as uh, Kraft Heinz, such as CJ's, all that have fermentation capacity and all who we can work with to um, enable us to scale um, and expand to the um, volumes that we need to start really um, making a dent in, in the cheese industry. So I'd say that's really the crux of the space right now is that the infrastructure that's out there can't keep up with the demands coming from companies. They're just moving incredibly quickly, being very well funded, but are naturally going to get to this bottleneck of, okay, we need to scale up to commercial scale. Where do we go? Because the infrastructure is very limiting. So is that part of the reason, I guess, going back to one of our first points, that it seems like the process that you are undertaking with New Culture, you're able to partner and collaborate with traditional cheese making factories is that part of the reason just so that you can increase capacity quite quickly yeah that's definitely a big bonus for us and a big positive to what we're doing but the other part to scale up is not just the cheese making but also the fermentation right the the precision fermentation part of it and that is something that is a shared infrastructure that that any company making an animal-free protein this way is going to need and so that really is the crux of it, is, is these special fermentation tanks that can grow your microbe, that can produce your protein, that you can purify that protein from. That is the limiting, the limiting reagent, so to speak, of this industry. It's helpful. That's really helpful. Switching gears a bit, what's one book that's inspired you professionally and one book that's inspired you personally? Well, by, I guess the personal one's easy because uh, favorite book of all time is Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie. Book that inspired me professionally I've read so many great books. Um, I love biographies, which there is, you know, an inspiration to me, whether it's within business or, or outside of business. And so maybe just because it's top of mind, um, I recently read the the biography of, of Ernest Shackleton, a very famous um, Antarctic explorer. So the golden age of Antarctic exploration in the late 19th century. And that was a masterclass on, on leadership. So I would say for now, uh, it's Ernest Shackleton's biography endeavor. That book gets brought up a few times on this show. Interesting. I'm so glad I'll put your name in and add you to the list on that one. And Midnight's Children, that's a new one. We haven't yet heard that. So I haven't read it. So I'll have to add it to my list too. It's amazing. I'd highly recommend it. Yeah. Cool. 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 Um, my final question to you is what's one piece of advice that you have for anyone that's looking to found a business? The quote I always I always like to say, and that what, what was said to me when I was sort of a lot younger was the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is now. You know, don't think about what ifs. Think about the present. And if you want to start something, do it now and just go for it. And I think taking that first step is the hardest step to take. You know, when I was in New Zealand and thinking, I really want to be a part of this space, this industry, but I can't because I'm far away and I don't know anyone else that wants to work on it. It, it prevented me from just going for it and taking that step. And actually when I did take that first step, when I did fly to the United States to try and meet people and to be to be as much of a part of this space as possible, that's when things happened, right? That's when doors were opened. And so just going for it 
now is such an essential part of, of at least the, the entrepreneurial journey. No, that's such, such great advice. Matt, thanks again for coming on the show. This has been so much fun. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Matt. Really excited for new culture to come out. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 